Good morning. It's a great delight to be with you this morning and to bring the word of the Lord to you. Uh, thank you, Pastor Haynes, for your kindness to have me here these days for this apologetics conference. It's a delight to be with you again in Retta and uh, with this church family that I've gotten to know a bit and uh, feel very much at home here with you, uh, with the common, uh, common Savior and, and common gospel and, and common convictions. And uh, so it's a delight to be with you. Well, this morning, we're going to focus our attention on the question of whether Jesus, in fact, is the only Savior. You'll have an outline in your worship folder where you'll, you'll find that uh, uh, outline to follow along. It's a question that is really pressing upon us these days as Christians who live in this pluralistic world that we're a part of. You know, pluralism at one level has always been the case. I mean, look in the Old Testament. The, the people of Israel were tempted to worship the gods of the nations around them. There were many gods uh, that, uh, of the nations that were, as it were, vying for their hearts and minds. And uh, it was true in the New Testament. You remember in Acts 17 where Paul went into the city of Athens and he observed how religious they were, shrines and altars and inscriptions to every known deity except for the one true and living God. That was the irony there. And then Paul told them who that God was. <clears throat> so pluralism at one level always has been the case. Namely, there, there have been a variety of religions and uh, beliefs in a variety of different gods. But what is particularly distinctive of the kind of pluralism that we face in our culture is that it's a pluralism that the elite, the intellectual elite, have decided we all must agree that every religion, religion is equal in its truth claim. <clears throat> that is, we, we, have to, we have to believe that every religion is equally legitimate and equally viable, or we're guilty of some kind of intolerance you know, that, that might be manifest to the other religions in this world that could breed violence. So for the, for the sake of peace and for the sake of the commonality of our humanity, we are urged to accept all religions as equally valid. Now, my friends, when you think about this, Christian people simply cannot go that way for one very simple reason. That is, Jesus is the only Savior. There is no other salvation than through Christ. And hence, we cannot accept as true that there are other paths to salvation as well, other religions that would provide a means by which people may be saved. No, it is through Christ alone. <clears throat> because of the press of the culture upon us in, in the church, there is such a need for Christian people today to have more confidence in what we, what we uh, attest to be true, what we believe as true, and that is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. To, to believe with greater confidence and see reasons for why we are to believe that Jesus is the only way. And that's really what we're going to be focusing on this morning. Now, because of religious pluralism, it has really put before us two questions. The first one we're dealing with this morning, the second one we're dealing with tonight. The first question is this question, is Jesus the only Savior? A fuller statement of that same question would be this, is the sinless life of Christ and his atoning death and resurrection the only means by which the penalty of sin is paid and the power of sin is defeated? Is that true? that this only happens through Christ. <clears throat> this question is being pressed upon us by the pluralism of our culture. 
But a second question also is part of this discussion, and, with, and this one we'll be focusing on tonight. And that is, is faith in Christ necessary to be saved? Or more fully, the question might be put this way, is conscious knowledge of Christ's death and resurrection for sin and explicit faith in Christ necessary for anyone to become a recipient of the benefits of Christ's atoning death and so be saved? Do people need to know of Christ, hear of Christ, believe in Christ to be saved? <clears throat> and indeed, there are people answering that question, no, these days. And uh, so we, we Christians must affirm that, in fact, not only is Christ the only Savior, but people must know of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved. But when you look at these two questions, they really yield three positions that are out there in the broader religious culture of which we are a part. Three positions are yielded depending upon how you answer these two questions. <clears throat> so pluralism, this view that all religions are equally valid, would answer question one, is Jesus the only Savior? No, of course not. Buddha, Muhammad, Lao Tzu, Confucius, there are other ways by which people can be saved other than Jesus. So they would answer the first question, no. Secondly, must people believe in Christ to be saved? Obviously, no. So pluralists would answer both questions, no. Uh, John Hick would be a representative figure of pluralism. He, he was the most prominent pluralist of the second half of the 20th century, to my knowledge, is still living. At least I haven't heard that he has passed away yet. And uh, interestingly enough, grew up as an uh, a evangelical Christian in England and was uh, witnessing of the Christian faith in his university years. But what led him away from the Christian faith was his observation that there were pious people in other religions, every bit as much pious, he felt, as Christians that he had known over the years. <clears throat> so there are Buddhists and Hindus and others who are equally pious. Well, their religions must be equally valid then. And that's what led him then to pluralism. We'll come back to that, uh, that notion that piety indicates the legitimacy of a religion. We'll come back to that later. But that is what, in fact, led John Hick away from the exclusivity of Christ uh, into pluralism. But then there is also inclusivism that is part of our broader evangelical subculture. <clears throat> An inclusivist would answer the first question, is Jesus the only Savior? Yes, he is. Only Christ is able to save people from sin. But then the second question, must people know of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved? They would answer that question, no. Although it is a good thing for the gospel to go out, for missionaries to go into other lands, the truth of the, of the matter is that God is already present in other places in the world with saving revelation already there through creation, through the, even, even through the remnants of truth that are in other religions. Yes, indeed, many hold that. <clears throat> remnants of truth in other religions. People have access to saving truth even, even though they don't know anything of Christ himself. They can be saved by their belief in God that they know from creation, that they know from other religions. So must people hear of Christ? No, even if that is a good thing for them. Uh, an advocate of that view, the, probably the, the most prominent advocate, is a, a theologian by the name of Clark Pinnock, who just passed away a few years ago. 
And Clark Pinnock used to be, I mean, years and years ago, taught at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary and was in those early days of his career a vibrant, evangelical, conservative, uh, biblically-centered theologian, but little by little moved away from some of those earlier convictions of his. And one of the ways in which this is testified is his movement to inclusivism, to his conviction that there are many, many uh, uh, people of faith out there in this world who are saved through what Christ has done, even though they've never heard of the Christ who saved them. And then finally, the exclusivist position, which I would identify myself with gladly. Uh, some, some people have other names for this, but I, I think exclusivism is a very fine name for this. Would answer the first question, is Jesus the only Savior? With a resounding yes. And must people hear of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved also with a resounding yes? And a couple people I put on here that you may not know of, Ron Nash, who I know uh, Pastor Haynes knows very well, passed away recently, uh, wrote a little book entitled, Is Jesus the Only Savior?, in which he goes through both pluralism and inclusivism and shows the deficiencies in both of those views. Very fine little book if you wanted to read something on this later. Is Jesus the Only Savior by Ron Nash? Uh, John Piper, who many of you have heard of, pastor, f- former pastor of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minnesota, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, he has a very fine chapter in there answering both the pluralist and the inclusivist. I would encourage you to look at that. I believe it's either chapter four or five of that book, and uh, so that, that's a very helpful chapter. And then I put my own name down here just so you know that's where I am on this as well, holding that both questions have to be answered with a resounding yes. All right. Now, our job this morning in, in our morning service is to deal primarily with that first question, is Jesus the only Savior? And save the second question, must people know of Christ and believe in Christ to be saved for tonight? And we'll come back to that this evening. But I want to focus our attention on reasons for why we should believe as Christian people what I know we already do believe, and that is that Jesus is the only Savior. But what stands to to support that conviction of ours, that, that in fact there is salvation in no one else, that only Jesus qualifies as Savior? And I see in the Bible several things about Christ that not only are true of Him alone, Of course, there there are probably more things than this than would be true of Christ alone. That is, they're not true of Muhammad. They're not true of Confucius. They're not true of any other religious leader. They're true of Christ alone. And here's the key point. They're true of Christ alone, and they are necessary for anyone who would be savior of sinners. In other words, if he's going to actually bring about salvation, if he's going to Uh, accomplish the work by which our sins are paid for and our sins are forgiven, then he has to have these qualities. These characteristics must be true of one who is Savior, and they are only true of Jesus. Well, when you see that, you realize Jesus alone qualifies then to be Savior because he alone is, and here we have these various aspects that we'll be looking at this morning. So different aspects that are true of Christ alone that are essential in, for, for anyone who would be Savior. Well, let's take a look at these together under Roman numeral 2 in your outline, biblical and theological basis for believing, embracing, and defending that Jesus is the only Savior. 
The first truth about Christ that I want to look at with you is the fact that he was virgin conceived, the virgin conception of Christ. And of course, we know that this was not only predicted in the Old Testament, it was fulfilled in the New Testament. Isaiah 7:14 was a prophecy uh, through, through the prophet Isaiah, a virgin will be with child and, and, uh, uh, and, and will bear a son, and uh, you will name him Emmanuel because he will save his people from their sins. So here is this virgin conception of Christ that is prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 7:14. Now interestingly, just so you know this, that in the Hebrew, the word that is used there that's translated, a virgin will be with child, is the Hebrew word alma, which means young maiden. And so it doesn't necessarily have to be a virgin, although almost all of its uses in the Old Testament are of young maidens who are unmarried, and hence virgins. But it doesn't have to refer to that, although that's its predominant uh, contextual meaning in the Old Testament. But, but we know that that was the, the intended meaning of that word, that is, it is a virgin because of how it is fulfilled in the New Testament, that this happens with Mary alone. Both Matthew and Luke highlight the fact that Mary conceived a child before she had sexual relations with a man. So she was a virgin. She was not married yet, and she, she was able to conceive a child. Uh, let's, let's look at the two passages there, Matthew 1 and Luke 1. Let's look at, at Luke chapter 1, <clears throat> and I'll pick up with you at uh, verse 27. At verse 27, Gabriel was called to a virgin, and here she's called that. And, and in Greek, by the way, the Greek term here is specifically virgin, not young maiden, but virgin specifically. Gabriel was called to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. Now, verse 29, she was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and will bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Uh, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary, of course, asks the obvious question, but how can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So here we have this amazing miracle that takes place the miracle that C.S. Lewis calls the grand miracle of the virgin conception of Christ. You know, by the way, sometimes we talk about the miracle of the virgin birth of Christ. Well, the birth was as miraculous as every other birth that takes place, right? In ter terms of, I mean, there, there, of course, the situation was, was uh, quite miraculous with getting Mary down to Bethlehem and all of those different events that took place. But the actual physical birth was a natural childbirth. The real miracle happened nine months earlier when she was able to conceive a child without a human father, and that was through the power of the Spirit, as the Spirit came upon her and enabled her to conceive miraculously. Okay, so we know the Bible teaches the virgin conception of Christ, and that's very clear. It was prophesied, fulfilled as we see it here in Luke. Now, here's the question. What does that have to do with Jesus being Savior? And the answer is this. There are two things 
theologically that hinge upon the virgin conception of Christ, both of which require that he be virgin conceived. The first one is that only if he was virgin conceived could he be fully God and fully man. He was fully God because by the Holy Spirit he was granted life in, his, in, the, in the womb of Mary, but as he was granted that human life, his divine nature joined to that human existence. But he was fully man because he was born of Mary. He came from her. So the, the, both the deity and the humanity of Christ, that he was fully God and fully man, sometimes called the miracle of the incarnation, the incarnation of, of deity in humanity, only happened through the virgin conception of Christ. Now, why that matters to salvation, I'm going to wait on that to the next point because that's actually number two is the historical incarnation of Jesus as the God-man. Back to the virgin birth, what's another uh, theological truth that hinges upon the virgin conception of, of, uh, of Christ? And it is this, that he is sinless because he did not have a human father. Now, not all theologians agree on this point, but most do, most are in agreement, that sin is passed on down through the line of the father, not not the mother per se, but the father. I mean, notice in the Garden of Eden, who sinned first, the man or the woman? Well, the woman sinned, but who did God hold accountable? He didn't come and say, Eve, where are you? It was Adam, who are you? And in Romans 5, sin comes to us through the one transgression of Adam, though the woman sinned first, it's the sin of the fathers that are visited upon the third and the fourth generations, as we see in Exodus chapter 20. Well, if it is the case that sin is passed on through the line of the fathers, that the children inherit then sin from their fathers specifically, and you remove the human father and put in its place, get this, the Holy Spirit well, then the holy child born of you will be called the Son of God, as Gabriel declares in Luke 1.35. So, the, the incarnation of Christ and the sinlessness of Christ are both uh, uh, tied uh, theologically to his virgin conception. You know, I remember reading uh, a number of years ago, Rob Bell, who uh, is, is no longer pastoring uh, the, the church in, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where he was at one time. Uh, he's off to other things. But uh, I remember reading one of his early books entitled, entitled Velvet Elvis, in which he is uh, in that book talking about how we shouldn't divide over doctrinal issues that really don't matter. And, you know, we, we ought to be open to just accepting things. And, of course, at one level, I would agree with that. There are doctrinal things that we ought to agree to disagree on and, and do so agreeably. But here's one example he gave, the virgin, the virgin birth of Christ. He, he says in Velvet Elvis, he says, so what if we found out someday that Jesus had a human father named Larry? What difference would that make to our Christian faith? And I'm reading that book going, what difference would it make? It would mean the whole thing is over. It's a sham if Jesus is not virgin conceived because you've got to have the virgin conception for the incarnation of the God-man. You've got to have the incarnation 
the, the virgin conception, for the one who is born to be sinless. And so apart from the virgin conception of Christ, he could not be the Savior. It is impossible. So let me ask you this. Is any other religious leader out there virgin conceived? Is that a claim made of Muhammad? Is that a claim made of Confucius? Is that a claim made of any other, any other religious leader that is out there? And the answer is no, only of Jesus is the claim made and is, more importantly, the claim true that he is the only virgin-conceived human being ever to come into existence. Secondly, the historical incarnation of Jesus Christ as the God-man must be true for one who is Savior. And of course, we know that this is true, that na namely that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. Put together, for example, John 1.1 with John 1.14. John 1.1, John declares, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now verse 14, And that Word, who was God, took on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Or Hebrews declares the humanity and the deity of Christ. So indeed, we have uh, in Hebrews 1, God spoke through the prophets in many portions in many ways, but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Well, who is this Son through whom God speaks? Well, that's the human Jesus who is a prophet of God, a prophet who comes in, in the line of, or in, 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 uh, as the greater than Moses prophet. But then he goes on to say, he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom he also made the world. Well, as creator, he is God, and yet he comes as, hu as a human being to be a prophet of God, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ of, Naz of Nazareth. So he's fully God and fully man. And then in Hebrews 2, of course, his humanity is emphasized. <clears throat> At verse 14 of Hebrews 2, he had to be made like one of us in order to bear our sin and die a propitiatory death on the cross. Philippians 2, likewise, teaches the deity of Christ and the humanity of Christ. You may remember in verse 6, Paul describes Christ as being in the form of God, one who is in very nature God, who does not consider equality with God. I mean, who can be equal to God but God? So he is fully God, but then he empties himself taking on human nature. So he is fully God and fully man together. Likewise, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and 6 refers to Jesus as the mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So some passages emphasize more the deity of Christ, others emphasize more the humanity of Christ, but one thing is clear, both are true of him. He is fully God, fully man. And by the way, this is not a 50-50 ratio, right? 50% God, 50% man. No, he is 100% divine. He has the full divine nature as being the second person of the Trinity who then takes on 100% human nature. So he is fully God, fully man in one person joined together inseparably forever. Amazingly. Okay. So, the scriptures are clear that he is the God-man. Now, what does this have to do with his qualification to be Savior? And the answer is this, that he has to be both fully God and fully man 
in order to accomplish the work of bringing about our salvation. Both of those are necessary. Let's start with the humanity of Christ. He has to be a man in order to live the life we were called to live, die the death we deserve to die, bear our sin in his body, and die for us. All of that requires mortality. But in his divine nature alone, he is not mortal. He is immortal, right? He is eternal. He is self-existent. And so the only way that God could die is if God takes on a nature that is susceptible to death, that could die. Uh, he, he could, the divine nature could not bear our sin because the divine nature is holy. But Jesus' human nature can bear our sin. So the imputation of our sin to the Son, as we read about in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us requires that he be human. So in all of these ways, to live the life we were called to live, to, to bear our sin in his body on the cross, to die for our sin and be raised, all of that requires his being fully a man. But that's not sufficient. That's necessary for the work that Christ will do. Namely, his humanity is necessary, but it's not sufficient. I, I remember a question that our daughter Rachel asked me one night at one of our bedtime theology talks that we had for a number of years. Uh, I, I remember we, we were talking about the atonement, and, uh, and Rachel asked the question. She was about 11 years old at the time, and she says, Daddy, I don't understand why, Jesus, why, why God had to send his son uh, to, to be the one who would, who would take our sin and die on the cross in our place. Why couldn't he just have raised up, created a second Adam from the dust of the ground, and he would have worked in this, this second man, this second Adam, so that he was sinless, and he could be the one that then takes our sin and dies in our place as a substitute. And he wouldn't have had to send his son. I said, Rachel, that is a great question. Now listen, here's the answer. Suppose that God had done that, that he had made this second Adam, just like he did in Genesis 2, from the dust of the ground and created him, and, and he lives a sinless life. Uh, God, God works in him so that he never sins, and, and then the moment comes when he bears our sin and dies on the cross. Okay, now here's the problem. This hypothetical second Adam, because he is human but only human, would pay for our sin the same way we would pay for our own sin if we paid for it by ourselves. You get the point? So he, he's just human as we are, so he would pay for our sin just like we would pay for our own sin. So now the question is this, how do we pay for our own sin if we pay for it ourselves? You know the answer to this question, friends. We pay forever. The reason hell is eternal, this is, this is not uh, some kind of overkill, no, no pun intended there, you know. This isn't, this isn't an overreach on God's part in terms of the payment we deserve to pay. It is the appropriate payment because of the offense we have made to an infinitely holy God. The reason hell is eternal is because we never pay off the debt we owe. This is one of the reasons that the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory is so damaging to Christian theology because it gives the notion that given enough time, we can pay it off. 
You know, finally the debt's done and we can enter into God's presence purged of our sin. Purgatory, right? Purged of our sin. But in fact, that is not true. Billions of years, trillions of years, endless time is not enough to pay off what we owe to a holy God. So, if this hypothetical second Adam takes our sin, dies in our place, will our sin ever be paid for fully? And the answer is no. So, he never could be Savior. What's the difference with that hypothetical second Adam and Jesus? Ah, the difference is, though he was also fully human, he was fully God, which means then that the offering that he pays is of infinite value. It satisfies fully the just demands of God's wrath against us and our sin in an instant, once for all, that if we paid for it ourselves, we would never finish paying I mean, it's remarkable to see Jesus raised from the dead indicating that he has triumphed completely over sin. And that only happens because he is both fully God and fully man. So, question, is any other religious leader out there fully God and fully man together? And the answer is no. I mean, these other religious leaders, as commendable as they may be, as admirable as they may be in traits and characteristics, it simply is not the case. Nobody claims of them, nor is it true of them, that they are both fully God and fully man. Only Jesus is fully God, fully man. Only Jesus, therefore, qualifies to be one who could be Savior. Third, Capital letter C, the sinless life of Christ. And of course, this is declared in so many passages in Scripture that he lived a completely sinless life. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hebrews 4.15, uh, we, we have a... a uh, uh, a Savior who understands our weaknesses, as, as Hebrews describes that, because he was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews declares in Hebrews 4.15. And other passages in Hebrews confirm that. You could look at those later that are listed there. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, verse 21 and following, we have this marvelous statement. We're called to, to suffer uh, in a way that Christ suffered, He left us an example that we should follow in his steps. What's the very next phrase? Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Indeed, Jesus lived a completely sinless life. Never, ever once did he sin. And you know, when you think of this, Uh, I'm just tempted to develop this a bit more with you uh, than than I probably should at the moment. But when you think about it, it is remarkable because you realize Satan knows the answer to this question. How many sins does it take to make a sinner? You He knows that, right? I just have to get him to slip up once. That's it. And it's all over. The whole thing is at stake in every single instance of temptation. And and Satan would have been after him harder than anyone ever in the history of humankind. 
and he was tempted in every way as we are, but he never, ever once yielded. And if you think, by the way, this is another sermon for another time, if you think, by the way, that that's because he was God, so it was easy for him to, to uh, resist temptation, think again. He lived his life as a man in the power of the Spirit and resisted temptation as we do with resources we have. And so every single temptation and victory over it was hard fought and won through faith, through obedience, through resolve of his soul, through meditation upon Scripture, through the power of the Spirit, he obeyed every day in every way to be Savior. Now, why why the sinless life of Christ to be Savior? Ah, Oh, my friends, this is glorious. I mean, all these things we're looking at this morning are just glorious. But here is, here is another bit of glory. When we talk about our justification by faith, oftentimes what is connected or the way justification is explained, which is true, by the way, don't think I'm, I'm doing a but here, uh, which is true, is this, just as if I never sinned. So what, hap- what happens in, when we put faith in Christ is that we believe in one who died in our place and paid the penalty for our sin. So Christ's uh, a payment for sin is credited to us, imputed to us as a positive thing, credited to us. So it is as if we had uh, ne- never sinned against God. And that's a glorious thing. But justification actually involves another element that is not as often talked about, but is glorious So justification is not merely just as if I never sinned. It is that, but not only that. It is also, are you listening? Just as if I had always obeyed. Do you hear the difference there? Just as if I never sinned just takes me back to zero. The the ledger is now, you know, the the, the debt is canceled and I'm back, back to nothing. But I don't have any positive righteousness, right? Ah, just as if I had always obeyed. That's the other face, as it were, of justification, the other, the other aspect of it, where, where righteousness is credited to us. It, it doesn't state merely forgiveness is credited to us, but righteousness is credited to us. Okay, now the question is this, what righteousness is that? And the Bible answer is it's the righteousness of Christ that is credited to us. So it is his sinless life, his life of obedience, what Reformed people like to talk about as the active obedience of Christ, which, which distinguishes it from the passive obedience of Christ when he yields himself to the cross to bear our sin on the cross. I mean, passive is not really the best word, is it? I mean, to be honest, because this is very active as well. He's actively giving himself. But do you see the difference? He's, not, he, he's yielding himself to be crucified at that point. Hence, they use the word passive. So it is the passive obedience of Christ of dying on the cross, but the righteousness imputed to us is the righteousness of his life of righteousness, just as if I always obeyed because his righteousness who always obeyed is credited to me. So let me ask you a question, friends. Who else has lived a sinless life? And by that, I do not mean merely morally commendable, exemplary, uh, a a, a remarkable life of service and the like. Oh no, I'm talking pure sinlessness. One sin ends it all. Who Who else has lived a sinless life? And the answer is no one else but Christ. So once again, he alone 
qualifies to be Savior. One who is Savior can only be Savior who has lived a sinless life for us. Then fourth, capital letter D, the substitutionary death of Christ. Well, indeed, the Bible declares so clearly that Christ died for us, bearing our sin. One of the strongest statements of that is the prophetic statement that is in Isaiah 53, particularly verses 4 to 6. Let me remind you of this statement. Uh, You can just listen or follow along if you wish. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. The point of that statement is, when you look at Christ that day on the cross, you would think he's getting what he deserves. He's, he's being smitten of God because that's what he is owed to him. And here's the truth. He's not getting what he deserved. He's getting what we deserved, right? So verse 5, he was pierced through four our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being has fallen upon him. By his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Wow. This is an amazing passage prophesying the meaning of the death of Christ hundreds of years before he came. So here is, here is Christ who gives his life a ransom for many, who, who did not come to be served but to serve and give his life a ransom, who, who dies the death we deserve to, to die, who takes the, the judgment upon himself we deserved to pay. Uh, you, you think, for example, of the statement that Paul makes in Romans 3, I won't read the passage to you, but that it is only because of Christ's propitiatory death, that that is, he satisfied God's wrath against us, that God then can be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. He can be just because a payment has finally been made after passing over sins previously committed. For hundreds of years, no actual sacrifice for sin has worked. Do you understand that? That the Old Testament sacrificial system, in fact, paid for how much sin? And the answer is no sin at all. That that Old Testament sacrificial system pays for as much sin as you pay for an item of clothing when you charge it on a credit card, right? How much have you actually paid for that item of clothing when you swipe the card? And the answer is nothing. But what do you do when you swipe that card? You obligate yourself to a, legally, you obligate yourself to a future payment. That's the way all of those sacrifices were in the Old Testament. They were, they were, forgiveness was offered on credit, as it were. Forgiveness was offered on the basis of the sacrifice that would come. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews 10, 4, cannot take away sin. It's not that they took away a little bit of it and Christ finished it off. Oh, no, they took away none of it. They're only efficacious because they are, t- they are tied to the future payment of Christ. Who paid everything when he died on the cross? Amazing. Okay, so yes, the death of Christ, taking our sin upon himself and paying the penalty we deserve to pay is, is, uh, is, is the, the work that he accomplished for our salvation. And here's the question. Was that kind of a death 
characteristic of any other person who has ever died. Now, notice I'm not asking the question, uh, did, uh, do other people die? I mean, obviously, everybody does, right? I mean, except for us uh, who are still living at this moment. But everybody in history has died. So the question is not, Christ died, have other people died? No, the question is this. Christ died a substitutionary atoning death in which he took the sin of others and paid the penalty for their sin as he died on the cross. Have other people died that kind of death? And the answer is no. There is no claim for such in, in uh, any other religion of the world, only Jesus' death has been a death that was substitutionarily atoning in its efficacy. So indeed, Christ alone qualifies as Savior. Then, the triumphant res resurrection of Christ also testifies to this. The triumphant resurrection of Christ. I put down a few passages here that highlight the... the uh, uh, the, the theme of the resurrection of Christ in apostolic preaching. So look, for example, in Acts chapter 2 where Peter mentions that Christ died and then rose again. Uh, Romans 4.25, uh, raised for our justification. But particularly, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul emphasizes the appearances of Christ, that he has been raised from the dead, and makes the claim that if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our faith is a little bit shaky, right? Oh no, uh-uh. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is worthless. There, there is no salvation at all if Christ has not been raised. Okay, now here's the question. What is the connection then between a salvation that works and the necessity of resurrection? Because that's the point that Paul is making in 1 Corinthians 15. By, by the way, maybe you should look at that passage yourselves just so you see that I'm not making this up. It's right here in the Bible. Uh, Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17, the following. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Do you see it? So here's the question. What, what is it about the, the resurrection of Christ that must be true in order for the death of Christ to have actually been efficacious, to have actually paid the penalty for our sin? And here, the answer is in this, is, is in what sin brings to us. So think first with me about the penalty of sin. What is the penalty of sin according to the Bible? Death. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, so death is the penalty of our sin. And then secondly, the power of sin. What is sin's greatest power that it has over us, over which we have no recourse? I mean, it has lots of power. It can make us jealous and revengeful and, and, and bitter and, and all kinds of horrible things. Sin has lots of power over us in lots of different dimensions, but the one thing it can do to us over which we have no recourse to respond is... It can kill us, right? So death is the greatest power of sin. Death is the penalty of sin. Okay, now, Christ died for our sins. Ah, well, if he died for our sins and paid the penalty of sin, now follow the logic of this, and if the penalty of our sin is death and he paid the penalty fully, what is the necessary expression that the penalty has been paid completely? 
he has to rise from the dead. If he remains in the grave dead, he's still paying because the penalty of sin is death. Only when he raises from the dead is it demonstrated he has paid the penalty fully. Same thing with the power of sin. If sin's greatest power is death and Christ remains in a grave dead, then sin's power is greater than him. Sin has conquered him. You see it? Only when Christ raises from the dead can it be shown that he has triumphed over sin and its greatest power. So the resurrection of Christ is necessary as the vindication and the demonstration of the efficacy of his atoning death, that his atoning death actually worked. Okay, question. Who alone, who, who, who else other than Christ has been raised from the dead? Now I have to add to that, not to die again, right? So we have Lazarus, we have others who were raised for a time, but they're not with us anymore. Who has been raised not to die again because he has triumphed over sin and its greatest power, death? Who else has been raised never to die again? And the answer is no one other than Christ. Only he is so raised. Only he is the one who has triumphed over sin as demonstrated by his resurrection. Therefore, only Christ is qualifies as Savior. Then finally, we have teaching from Christ himself, dominical teaching, and from the apostles that that only Christ is Savior. So Jesus uh, declares in John 3, 16 that, uh, that, that there is only salvation in him by belief in Christ. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will receive uh, forgiveness of sins and not uh, suffer the consequences of, of uh, damnation. And, and uh, likewise, uh, Jesus declares in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And then Peter, in Acts chapter 4, uh, when, when uh, they are told to not preach the gospel anymore, and Peter refuses to do that, and he says, By the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands before you in good health. He is the stone which the builders rejected, but became the chief cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So indeed, the Bible is clear. If we're going to be faithful to Christ... I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And faithful to the testimony of the apostles, there's no other salvation other than through the name of Christ. Then we must believe Jesus alone is Savior. So here we have these reasons for, for, for understanding what we believe as Christian people, that Christ alone is Savior. So what application does that have for our lives? Well, my friends, it means this, that while we can respect other people and their faiths, we cannot acknowledge with them that their religions are equally true. It simply is false to say that. And furthermore, if it is true that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, the only access there is to the Father is through him, then isn't it the loving thing to do to insist that people understand this truth about Christ and not be deceived into thinking there are other paths of salvation available when there are no other paths 
of salvation available. I mean, just as an analogy, maybe this will help, you know, to use with some people that you might talk about Christ and they find this offensive, that you claim he's the only way to be saved. They find that an offensive thing. Ask them this question, you know, what, what, what if someone, some research institute out there actually did come up with a cure for AIDS? I mean, a cure that actually worked. It, it, it cured AIDS completely, removed it altogether uh, from, from the, the hu- human who took this, uh, this medication. And at the very same time, though, there were another, uh, a number of other research projects going on, and they were putting out products that promised to cure people from AIDS, but you knew that they were wrong. Those other ones were wrong. This one alone worked. Would, would it not be the loving thing for you to want people to know these other ones will not bring about the cure you want, just this one? And would that be selfish? Would that be offensive? Is that intolerant or is it loving to insist on the truth when the truth is true? So my friends, we have, by God's grace, nothing in us commends us to be the recipients of this. We have the precious message of the gospel, the gospel that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and Christ was raised from the dead according to the scriptures and he appeared to to various people. We have access to the only gospel by which people are saved, the only savior that there is. May God give us the longing not only to uphold the truth with greater uh, confidence and greater zeal, but to be proclaimers of that truth more generously, more, more freely, and more confidently because we know it's true. And if we care about those people, we will want them to know the truth of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for our time this morning to consider these, these six ways in which we can affirm with greater confidence the truth we have affirmed for years, most of us here anyway, have affirmed for years, and that is that Jesus is the only Savior. But thinking through these various things, we see why it is the case that only Christ qualifies. He alone was conceived of a virgin. He alone is the God-man. He alone lived a sinless life. He alone died a substitutionary death. He alone rose triumphant over sin. And he alone is declared in Scripture to be the Savior. Dear Lord, please help us to be a people with greater confidence in this truth and greater desire to see the truth known by others. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.